0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Media Rights podcast where we have the very great pleasure of talking to Andrew Cook, General Counselor at Fnatic. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Will Deller, a Senior Associate in Bird and Birds and Meteor Entertainment and Sports Team based in London, also very heavily involved in our esports and games practice. But far more importantly, Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yes, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Andrew Cook, I'm General Counselor at Fnatic, one of the leading teams in esports and formerly of uh, promoters, music, sports, et cetera. Since I joined Fnatic, what I've been trying to do is help mature the back office function at Fnatic. Lots so of other teams like Fnatic have been investing in people like me uh, over the course of the last couple of years. As valuations have increased, investors have started to look for sort of risk and uh, process oriented people to come into these kind of teams and level them up. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And that's also tracked bigger deals in the space, right? So um, a lot a lot more action in that in that area. So that's really been the focus for me uh, since I joined. Wins have included esports first safeguarding policy. I would say pro gaming's first safeguarding policy uh, to better off. I think we've tuned up sort of paperwork and risk stance in Fnatic across the board. Bigger and bigger sponsorships in the area as well. So some big deals done with the likes of BMW, but also big deals imminently on the horizon, and uh, really happy to talk to you all today.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Andy. And it's, it's worth actually saying, I think most people will know about Fnatic, but Fnatic is obviously a, an eSports organization. That it's a competitive gaming organization, but much more than that, in that it, it's a sort of lifestyle brand. It's involved in producing gaming-related content, merchandise, sort of the whole nine yards. So it's really a, a, a very sort of diverse brand, but founded on competitive gaming.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's, um, yeah, for anybody who's not, not in the space, sorry, I should have covered that off. I was too busy talking about myself, Will, um, which is always a threat again. Fnatic is one of the longest standing uh, organisations in esports, so uh, that means about 15 years. We are about third, I think now, in the all-time money list. We've won uh, tournaments in many games. So like most leading esports organisations, we don't just run one team, we run teams across... Tier 1 titles like League of Legends, Counter-Strike, Valorant, the newest um, Tier 1 title, uh, and also in games like FIFA, Rainbow Six, and so on. Um, As you correctly noted, we sell apparel as well as uh, leading uh, award-winning performance hardware uh, available through shop.fanatic.com and various key (laughs) key, uh, key retailers. Um, and, and that's obviously been very helpful to us during uh, COVID, for example, when lots of people uh, invested in their hardware. Less so much now. now everyone's rushed out of their uh, lockdown and into the pub and is no longer buying consumer goods, but um, yeah, very helpful uh, about a year ago and a unique thing within esports. No other esports team makes its own hardware. So um, yeah, that's that's been interesting over the last year as well.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Andy. Uh, that's really helpful. Um, First thing, I was I was going to ask a couple of questions about the your your sort of observations of the industry in general because, um, I think like in your role as a general counsel, particularly an organisation like Fnatic, you really have sort of well, we've spoken before. It's pretty clear you have got under the skin of esports, and mm-hmm. um, and so just wanted your take on a, a couple of things. Really, the first is, you know, it's it's no no secret that ju- over the course of the pandemic, viewership figures within esports expanded enormously. So you know, Mm. teams that were having you know viewership figures of their Twitch streams and sort of the millions might find it's the tens of millions and their fan base is growing and growing and growing. And did that actually, from a sort of strategic perspective, how 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 did that impact Fnatic? Was it a sort of validation of everything it's done to date? Or was it the case that actually they thought, well we've got all these new fans that we might need to serve in different ways? Or for example, is the fact that you know most esports viewership is all free mean that you actually need to think of creative ways to monetize your fan base in a different way so what how, how did the pandemic affect fanatic
1: um well i'll put the hardware piece to one side because it's specific to Fnatic. it was as i said it was very helpful to have diverse revenues um during the pandemic that's for sure um just going out to the sort of macro position i think one of the things that the pandemic disproved was the idea that um, esports team revenues would track in line with viewership, right? Um, I think for most teams, with some exceptions, by which I mean the teams who are principally influencer and social media reach focused, right? So you'll know, uh, people who know the space will know know the kind of things we're talking about and people who don't. Uh, it wouldn't really be helpful if we didn't identify them. But there are some teams who, particularly in the first era of esports, went very heavily into sort of esports as a, as, or, or creators and influencers being the key drivers of their brand. And I think those teams probably did quite well because most of their deals were structured on the basis that they would benefit if more eyeballs came to them. But for the a- average team that's just creating average content, the increase in viewership showed that that wasn't a sustainable model. Um, there will be a point, I think, where broadcast revenues, and I'm talking sometime in the future, where broadcast revenues are a viable sort of basis upon which to set up a sustainable eSports team, but we're not there yet. So we're talking really about the bridge between those two points. So if COVID shows that there's, you know, if viewership goes up, you don't make a whole lot more money as an eSports team, then you have to make some decisions strategically as to what you're going to do between now and when those broadcast revenues do kick in. And apparel is probably also not the answer. And you've started to see a lot of teams now outsource apparel. So again, if we just think about the LEC G2 um, doing the deal with Adras, which was a big launch for them last year, Vitality is also an Adras team now, and so on. So lots of teams have just you know outsourced that. And what that means, of course, is the team will not see all the all the potential from scaling um, apparel. Most of that will go to like most of the scale benefit will go to the manufacturer most likely. Um, so that leads to once you've taken out broadcast rides and you've taken out apparel as a source of revenue, then well, what are you left with? Well, you're left with and, and esports as, as entertainment is not a product that's going to scale. As we've said, because COVID shows that that's not the case. Well, Fnatic has an answer to that question, which is we sell hardware, so we use esports and uh, creators as channels to help promote the sale of our hardware, which again, you know, makes sense. Like just a, a sort of like a linear proposition that makes sense. We also then uh, use the entertainment as a as a, as a top of funnel kind of fan engagement piece, and you've you've seen some evolution in how we do that. So. Again, one of the things that you'll see, in addition to this, the esports teams making decisions around what this additional uh, sort of revenue line is going to be, um, you'll see brand definition coming in esports. What, what you've kind of had between say 2016 and 2020. So the ramp up to the launch of, uh, of franchising of League of Legends. And then the period after that, when basically people were just jumping on teams because it was esports and they wanted to get involved. So, you saw a lot of seed investment money coming in at that stage. I think you'll now see brand definition in the same way that you do within, uh, sports. Right. So, uh, I'm sorry, traditional stick and ball type sports. So you will have, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, the way in which Barcelona separates itself from Real Madrid, right. One almost kind of imperialist, uh, one, you know, mass game club type, uh, club of the people, uh, you know, not talking too much about the debt uh, and so on, but ultimately very different brand propositions. I think you'll see that kind of thing happen more in esports. So so brands will start to emerge from the mass of esports brands, right? And start to talk about different things and different aspects of their brand personalities in a way to try to appeal to consumers outside of the people who are currently watching esports. Right? And for Fnatic, again, that's been to try to talk a lot more about performance, so the process, the journey of going towards winning rather than just people hosting trophies, which has been the sort of traditional esports image. And that means, again, if you think about our work in safeguarding, you can see how that connects into that because it's about building that brand around gaming and around esports and accepting also that esports is not a niche activity or let's say gaming, pardon me, is not a niche activity anymore. Gaming is now an activity that a very broad demographic, men and women, multiple ages, people who have loved gaming for as long as I've loved it, as long as you've loved it, also people who are coming into it, people who used to play and now don't because competitive gaming perhaps disengages them and so on. All those people are now the kind of people that esports brands are gonna try to attract. Uh, And for us, again, performance and products are part of that for the esports teams. Some have doubled down on the entertainment content piece. Some have uh, tried to go through platforms, right? They create their own platforms. So um, I can think of another team that's investing quite heavily at the moment in platform services to try and create sort of esports as a service type opportunities, right? That revenue stream. You won't see those things happening right now unless you're very, very engaged with the community. But I think in the years to come, uh, Anybody's interested in this space should look for those kind of moves. All of those relate back, um, as this very long and rambling answer uh, eventually will, to your initial, initial question of how has COVID affected esports teams, and, and the, the sort of the short answer is it's made them make hard strategic decisions that they didn't have to make up until that point.
0: I think that, that's really interesting. I mean, just to pick on one area that you, in those examples of different monetization revenue streams, one that it'll be interesting to expand on a little bit more is on the partnership side, because I know it's an area where you guys are really active and also have done some really cool and interesting things, but to my mind, I agree with you in saying that longer term, there is a future for for, for broadcasting rights to, to actually finance a lot of the eSports ecosystem. Yeah. It's not there yet. So to my mind, though, you have this enormous pool of viewers, the demographic demographic and in a demographic that actually brands are finding it increasingly hard to reach via perhaps more traditional means. And so sponsorship to me would seem like a way that you say, well, actually, is esports really undervalued as a sponsorship proposition? And talking to I was talking recently to um a senior lawyer a, a major consumer brand who 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 are involved in sponsorship of everything from traditional sports to music events to esports to all sorts. And he said that by far and away, eSports is, gives, gives them their, most, their, their highest ROI on any sponsorship property by miles. So yeah. is, have, you, have you noticed at all that um, that the market for eSports, that eSports sponsorship rights is an easier market than it was before the pandemic or harder or just different?
1: Um, well, first of all, I would, I would definitely validate that insight by that um, uh, exec you spoke to. Um, our data, which is provided by Nielsen, um, says exactly the same thing. Um, I think s- almost to its detriment sometimes. Like, um, my, my wife used to work for a, a FMCG brand, and they would, you know, when they make consumer claims, so, you know, 100% of or X percent of consumers say that after using this product for two weeks, you know, they saw less wrinkles or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, they would never say 100% because it, was it wasn't a believable number. Right, so it's always a kind of like a ninety-three point two percent or something along this kind of lines, and this is one of the challenges we're actually facing with the numbers: is they show such a massive uh, improvement over an investment in a traditional sport that they almost become unbelievable uh, to yeah. accept what we present to. Um, but that's a that's a bit of a, a bit of a sidebar. Um, I think the. Appetite for investment in esports amongst these brands, or let's say amongst non-endemic brands, by which I mean, and, and you'll be familiar with that term, I'm sure, as I'm sure many of the listeners will. But we separate uh, in esports endemic brands from non-endemic brands. BMW would be a non-endemic brand because it doesn't have any sort of presence in uh, computers or gaming or technology uh, per se. Um, it's an auto manufacturer, obviously, or mobility solutions provider, I should say. Um, we, we're always interested to bring non-endemic brands into the space and for some of those brands uh, eSports still has some links to or is a challenging investment because either I'd say the CMO doesn't really understand it, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that our partnership team is very good at is explaining things to people who don't understand eSports, yeah. breaking down some of those barriers in terms of decision making, making them be in a place to be able to brief their boards and stakeholders about esports and get them in a place of comfort. Um, so, so, even once we've got over that, we still have questions around things like toxicity in esports, right? So, uh, esports culture, meme culture, how brands will, de- will sort of deploy in that space—that's a real challenge for some brands. Um, our answer to, the, to that question, of course, is well, either to implicitly criticise other traditional teams like. I don't know if you've been to a football match recently, but what said on the terraces doesn't necessarily uh, correspond with, um, let's say, uh, polite practice. Um, it's a kind of a digital version of that. Sometimes online, we're not here to to solve toxicity. We are here to promote positive gaming, and brands can be helpful in in the in the promotion of positive gaming. Um, the or it's just a general kind of like this sounds like something which still isn't really fully formed or mainstream, so we don't want to put our brand in connection with it. And some yeah. of that is about overall partner evolution. So when a brand like BMW makes a decision to step into a space, it emboldens other brands to step into that space, either just because of FOMO or because you know they see it. If a, if a generally conservative brand like that is prepared to put its marketing money on this, there must be something to it. And I think a lot of the brands have been very smart in terms of how they deployed. The challenges to us outside of those sort of specifically within Fnatic I think are look esports has become a lot more competitive right so Fnatic had a sort of I would say a first mover advantage but Fnatic was was dominant in the 1.0 era of esports so this is the stage where you're seeing professional players you're seeing stadiums full of fans you're seeing sort of multiple revenue lines but you're not necessarily seeing kind of hyper growth um and in fact, I had a conversation with uh, one of our team directors. We have a transfer window upcoming. So we're playing uh, through a split in League of, League of Legends currently. Um, after that, then we have the World Championships. And then after that, the season will end and there'll be a transfer window. And you know, there'll be, we have some players who will be out of contracts uh, during that time. That's a matter of sort of public record because they're on a, a contract database, which is issued by Riot, the developer of the game sort of talking tactically about that transfer window, some decisions um, sort of doubling up. And we look at some of our competitor teams in the LEC, and we say, where are they actually getting the resources from to be competitive with the kind of players that we might be interested uh, to acquire Mm -hmm. or indeed to to pay the salaries and transfer fees for players that you might want to sell? Um, And we're sort of scratching our heads a little bit on it. And this, this shows you how, how hard it is now to be competitive in esports, you know, at any stage, and we're fighting on multiple battles because we, fought, we fight in, in multiple games. To be competitive in a game, the level of resources that you need to deploy just goes up and up every year. So whenever we create a performance advantage, so that might be, for example, we were early on in introducing performance-related staff, so mental coaches, physical performance coaches, nutritionists, um, specialist facilities, all that kind of stuff, what, once you do that, it very quickly goes around the system and other teams start to do that as well. So we're always looking for these performance advantages, um, and that obviously also involves a quite significant deployment of resource. So that also means, because a lot of uh, sponsors sort kind of correlate trophy lifts with investable, because right? everyone understands the trophy lift, that also makes it much harder to fight for these kind of sponsor dollars. So we have to do more creative things with the partners that we do get together and you kind of credited us for doing creative stuff, but I think our work in brand deployment in games, so branded maps in Fortnite, branded maps in CSGO, um, NFTs is also a very interesting space. So actually digital items and, and, and that growth is vertical. Um, I think we, we try to be um, progressive in how we use those kind of things to entice the sponsors in, because once you get the sponsors in, you deploy the the great content, they they want to come back. That enables you to have more resources to invest in the talent. That should bring the sponsors back again, so you get a nice kind of virtuous circle going. And and right now, I feel like we're in a, a good space from that standpoint as well
0: that's that's really interesting and you've actually um unhelpfully presaged one of my my next question which was actually around um around in game activation on the partnership yeah. side because well and, well and more broadly really because to my mind one of the if i were if I were a sponsor, actually getting to place something in a game is a particularly interesting and unique thing to be able to do, which you can't replicate with many other sponsors you won't, well, with really any other sponsorship properties. Yeah. Um, it is obviously riddled with potential legal issues, and so in your role in general counsel must sometimes be a bit of a head scratcher. But do you think that um, the likes of NFTs and, I suppose, yeah, NFTs and and in-game assets generally are those? Is that a sort of key area of growth? Do you think for on the partnership side and for the business more broadly?
1: Yeah, I would probably. So to put entities on the side for for, for a second, I think in game activation undoubtedly is a massive, massive growth area. Like, there's there's no doubt about that. And the reason for that, of course, is because so, so there's going to be phases of this. The first phase that we're in now is just branded maps played by creators, creating activation of the brand in a way which is very sort of uh, viral and shareable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also create interaction of, of, of considerable depth that offers something of interest to the fan. Okay, so you, you to talking less abstract terms, you'll know that the best sponsorship activations are those that are perceived to offer value to the fan. Right. So I, as a fan, interact with the brand. It adds value to my life. I gain I, I gain a positive impression of the brand. If it, if the brand is Forced upon me in the course of an activation, right? Then I feel much less positive towards the brand, right? So we did an activation recently with Lavazza. Um, As part of its Icons of Italy series, we got our uh, sort of one of our lead creators, uh, Power, um, to uh, play a branded Fortnite map, um, in- including sort of lots of Lavazza IP. Um, the average dwell time. Of a player of that um, map was about twenty-seven minutes um, dwell time as a thing. Sort of, most advertisers will be happy to get thirty seconds of dwell time on something. If you think about how quickly you'll scroll past a advert on in your Twitter feed, right, or in a, yeah. a sort of skyscraper on the side of a website, even if that can even if it be there, we're talking about microseconds. Never mind, never mind seconds or minutes. So that's a that's a huge level of engagement with something, and of course. Once people start to film themselves playing the map, because of you gaining the content, right? So, how quickly can you build it? What's, what's the high score? What can you get, you know, all those sort of things? People are now creating that content, they're creating the content live, interacting with the brand, then posting that online and challenging other people to beat them and so on. The viral impacts of that in terms of impressions and dwell time are aggregated yeah. that's where you talked earlier on about these incredible returns. That's where those kind of returns come from. So, obviously, fans are going to start to get like the the novelty of those kind of things is going to wear off just like uh, things something like fan zones at a tournament initially did. Like initially that was a great bolt onto your experience as a fan to go to the fan zone whilst you're there and have a sort of like a, it increases the sort of uh, engagement of families with that and all that sort of thing. But now everywhere has a fan zone. They've just become really commodified. So that's not any fun anymore. So you have to think about what the next step is. The next step is, the bringing together, not just of brand elements, right? But an overall brand specific experience that that forms part of a wider game. So that's where you see this kind of Ariana Grande, you know, times Fortnite type experience, right? Where effectively it's Ariana Grande as a brand with their music as the environment for it, coming into this social environment, within Fortnite, where people interact and engage with that and obviously create content out of that as well. Um, that's Ariana Grande as a brand, but I think you can see how a major brand, I'm talking about you know one of the world's top 10, a kind of a, a, a Nike or a McDonald's or something like that, would want to participate in that space and do it in a way which was dynamic. And again, going back to our friends at BMW, BMW didn't just sponsor Fnatic, they sponsored uh, initially five esports teams around the world And they did that to enable them to sort of bounce off each other, to compare their brands with each other, for them to create ways to use the BMW brand, which was interesting and dynamic for fans, has been very successful for them. And I think you'll probably see those bigger brands start to do that, either with creators or with players and teams, um, or with both, right? To just look for angles of how do we create these experiences for the next generation of consumer that will, will live a substantial part of their life in these uh, games and systems. So there's lots of interesting stuff happening there. In relation to NFT specifically, again, you know, NBA top shots or that sort of thing do show the power of collectibles. I do think that um, authenticatable collectibles are probably the first real world application of NFTs that actually really works, right? Or let's say a, of consumer engagement yeah. with blockchain. Right. So you can talk about, okay, block, you know, blockchain is the new internet, it's going to change all of our lives, you know, decentralized financial solutions, etc., cetera, et cetera. For most people, they just like their bank and their credit card and those kind of things I would suggest. Right? I think we're a long way away from fully decentralized finance. But the idea of a collectible product that I can trade on multiple platforms has some kind of intrinsic value, either on a market level or just because I like the idea of having something and sort of collecting it. But I can be absolutely certain there's only you know one or ten or a hundred or whatever it is of these in the world, and I am one of them. Yeah, that's something that people just understand, and it's a nice application of of blockchain. So, you know, what we've seen so far is a few sort of esports related NFT products getting out there, um, got some traction, some sponsors started to participate in that as well. As a kind of like a, a like a fan token type product, so I think it's still and we've seen this with a couple of esports teams that have launched a product where there's been a financial element to it and it's kind of, you know, it's the, the financial value has gone up and then it's been dumped and it's gone down and some fans have been burned from that kind of thing. Like, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. That, that, we're in that stage at the moment, which is wheels spinning in various different ways, some gaining traction, some not gaining traction, some exploding, and therefore, reducing the chances that wheels will spin in the future. For me, we haven't seen yet a, 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 a sort of like a really solid collectible product, which is platform agnostic, in which people can trade and enjoy trading, and have confidence that the underpinning smart contract is at, actually has legitimacy. Once we reach that level, then I think that you will see NFTs form part of effectively uh, another vertical for sports team revenues and traditional sports team revenues. Um, I think there's lots of potential there until we until we actually see that product hit the market fully. Um, I don't think we can really have any firm views on what that potential is. Um, what I do see in sort of meta, metaverse and NFTs link is in relation to things like digital apparel, right? In-game collectibles. So basically getting rid of the black market in um, skins, right? creating smart contracts around skins and skin trading. I think that sort of thing makes sense. There you're going to need developers to build in open world, sort of tradable platforms mm-hmm. into their products to or into their games to allow that kind of thing to happen. Um, my experience of working with the larger developers is that they think like rights holders in traditional sports. So there's a lot of parallels in having conversations with Riot, and FIFA, for example, um, FIFA, in my experience, uh, and this is also true of like major football clubs and things, they tend to think more about how to lock down and control, right, and then sort of give little bits of that control back to, for example, a host city or uh, a licensor, uh, a licensee company, rather than think. Okay, what could we do if we actually open this up? Right? That, that, that tends not to be the mindset. I'll give an example. I remember uh, I was at a conference a couple of years ago when we could still do those kind of things in person, and there was somebody there from a Premier League club, and they were talking about fan associations, licensing fan associations. And they basically said, Well, actually, what we spend most of our time doing is shutting down fan associations, right? Because we only want to deal with you know, the one official team fan association in Timbuktu, right? We, we only want to deal with one and they want to be the official one. And we require them to sign up to our governance protocols and this licensing agreement, and they have to be capitalized to this extent all this kind of stuff. Obviously, esports is, generally speaking, the completely the other way around. Like You want as many people to be engaged with it as possible and have there to be as few barriers as possible to that. So um, getting over that barrier, I think is going to be a little bit difficult. But once we've got over that barrier, and these things are tradable, and there's an active market in these kind of things. I think the secondary on that, so not even the primary transaction, the secondary transaction on that can be really interesting for teams, be really interesting for creators, because they can create uh, interesting, fun products um, that are interesting to fans, participate in revenue from those and create this kind of nice holistic return for themselves. So this is like Animal Crossing uh, creators, right? Where you're creating, we saw people do this uh, like straight out of the gate. There was a fanatic uh, sort of Animal Crossing skin out of somebody put together with like the little monster logo on the sleeve and the black and orange and everything like the detail was really good. And those kind of things, if they were to become fully tradable on an open world platform, you can see how there could be an interesting market in that. And that, and again, mm-hmm. the smart, it's provided the smart contracts are correctly sort of put together. Be really interesting for lots of people. So I'm excited about that and how that connects into um, these kind of metaverse um, or, or the metaverse as a whole. I think the digital product piece, we just haven't even started to see this, the, 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 the potential of that yet. That will come through provided everyone decides, provide everyone's open minded enough about it and also it doesn't get too greedy.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Andy. Shall will ask my metaverse question now? And as you've raised it, I mean, you talked about blockchain potentially being the new internet, but a lot of people talk about the metaverse being the new internet. And so for those of you who've who've heard the term, but might not be familiar with it, this is sort of where the the virtual and real worlds collide or where the real world becomes the virtual world or vice versa, depending on how you look at it. So to take an example, you know, Facebook saying they have plans to be able to make port a hologram of somebody next to you to be able to look at the same screen as you virtually when you're working in the in the sort of same office environment. Could be any any number of things, but really it's sort of the convergence of the digital um or virtual and real worlds. A lot of the sort of early use cases for the metaverse um have have been seen in gaming. So Fortnite's a really good example of how people can live a, for want of a better phrase, a full life but sort of in a virtual setting. So they can they they don't just go on there to play the game and to shoot people and win the game they actually go on there to socialize or so they go to virtual concerts and they meet their friends and they trade things and whatever else might happen gaming's been it, it sort of seems to be at the forefront of the development of the metaverse and Fnatic, as a sort of a, a real sort of legacy brand in esports which itself has been a testing ground for a lot of things we now see in video games and in entertainment more broadly do you think that Fnatic is particularly well placed to take advantage of the opportunities that the metaverse presents? Because as you say, you're already involved in gaming culture, in streaming, in NFTs, in in-game items, creating and, and using and being part of virtual worlds. Is that a conversation that Fnatic is actively a part of?
1: Yeah, I mean, it comes up a lot in relation to our conversation with partners. As you can probably tell from what I said before, Like we're thinking actively of ways um, to to... Bridge people into this space. I think that's the, the first, again, first phase role for teams is most likely as a conduit into the metaverse conceptually, right? And also in terms of uh, brokering how brands and products best work in this environment, which we very natively and intuitively understand, right? So, your, I mean, If I think about back office, generally, you mentioned earlier on how tricky it can be to look at these concepts and kind of try and draft around them. Like like I can tell you now, working right now on FT-related stuff, it's really hard to look. I mean, obviously, that's the job, and that's why it's interesting. But to try and look even a year in the future as to where this could be and draft around that particularly from an exclusivity standpoint like for example if you want to even with um a a very traditional partner like uh bmw if you've done the deal with bmw say not maybe 10 years ago is probably the right timeline at that stage i would query whether bmw would have seen uber as being a competitor right yeah so at that stage the idea that you would have use Uber, not as a substitute for taxis, but as a substitute for owning a vehicle may not necessarily have been on everybody's agenda. It's that kind of sort of forward looking thing, but on absolute steroids, because both the crypto space and sort of this uh, transition of games to from being an entertainment experience, uh, i.e. a substitute for, I don't know, kicking a ball around or watching a film, to being A total replacement not just for Facebook but also for um, the games that you play, the music that you listen to, the um, you know, the movies that you watch, all those things combine into a place which is this kind of controlled environment. Then, with two massive drivers coming in, which is kids already spending significant amounts of money on virtual goods, right? That's now become habitual because of games like Fortnite. And then also, of course, we talk, We started talking about the pandemic, but you can't get away from the fact that the pandemic has normalised the idea of working with your colleagues virtually, right? So that I now live most of my life at home, but I expand my horizons virtually. I'm going to talk about that concept. Those two drivers alone, we couldn't have predicted, well, not say a year ago, but two years ago. So when I started the job, that, you know, the, the I don't think even... I mean, obviously, Roblox Roblox hadn't ipo at that stage, but Metaverse concepts were, were were well understood within the gaming industry. I would say, and at that stage, obviously, Netflix was already saying, "Look, our biggest competitors are not, um, uh, you know, social media platforms. It's games or whatever, it, whatever it was." Yeah. All those things have just gone so fast. Right now, we're just trying to hang on. So, you would say, what's the role of 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 into it. I can only think one phase ahead at this particular stage. Like obviously we yeah. are actually thinking about future phases. But at this stage right now, I think it's almost like I drew the parallel with Uber, but, but thinking about it, the better parallel might actually be the first phase of influencer marketing, where at that stage it was just tell us how to speak to the people that are going to speak to the people that we want to talk to. Yeah. I think it's probably that that's probably the better parallel.
0: Yeah. And I I actually I, I think that Given the way that the 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 speed and the manner in which the esports industry has developed, I think that brands like Fnatic are particularly well because they're so adaptable, are particularly well placed to 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 identify what the opportunities are in the metaverse and to be able to, to capitalise on them and actually and actually get getting on the ground quickly.
1: It emphasises the importance, though, will. So I I, I agree with that, but it emphasises the importance of creating specificity around your brand right Mm. so you're not just you know insert generic esports team brand you have brand values that people connect with and they carry into that universe right because yeah right, right now we have this incredible social following but a lot of that is driven by the fact that we are game agnostic and we are flexible so if a game does arise right we can jump in and so like Valorant. Which has gone from. I mean, obviously, the timing of the launch of Valorant couldn't have been any better if they tried, because um, it literally launches. But at that moment, when everybody is stuck at home, I think it was, you know, second like or third week of April, 2020. Yeah. Everybody's stuck at home. They do that wonderful uh, beta keys get, uh, beta keys get issued out through streamers, so everybody starts watching specific streamers to uh, the possibility of getting a key to get into Valorant early. And of course, when they get into Valorant early, they just start boasting about the fact they're in Valorant early. So you have this huge level of online attention, but that carries, right? So most, you know, the most the sort of the first World Championships of, of Valorant, you get a million concurrent viewers. That's insane for a new esports title. I mean, you know, there are there are many esports titles that are well viewed, which would never even touch uh, a million TCU for. Um, for a for a leading tournament, I mean FIFA, which is obviously a very well known game, but isn't a very much watched game as as you'll know. You know, doesn't even get close to that. The only time it would get close to that is if you had some kind of stunt, you know, Messi plays Ronaldo on FIFA, and you have a kind of like a, you know, people are just interested in it because just let's just see how good Ronaldo is at that, at, at FIFA. That would be the most watched uh, game of FIFA ever, but it's you would never repeat it, of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Andy. Fascinating insights as always. And your time is hugely appreciated. That at the end of part one of this interview for meteorites uh, talking to Andrew Cook, General Counselor Fnatic on everything, esports, tech, gaming, the metaverse and beyond. So please tune into part two to be able to access via the link below. So thanks very much, Andy.
1: It's fine. It's no more concise than part one, unfortunately. <laughs>